Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Julia LaRoche Show. Today's guest is Dana Diaria, co-CIO of InvestNet. In this episode, Dana and I talk about helping financial advisors create a more personalized experience for clients. We also got Dana's thoughts on the macro environment, the market, value investing, and investor psychology. I really enjoyed this conversation with Dana, and I think you will too. Dana Diaria, co-CIO of InvestNet and group president of Solutions. Great to welcome you to the podcast. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. Well, um, I noticed that you and I have a similarity in our backgrounds and that's that we were both uh, business journalists. So I'd like to hear from you about your journey from being a business journalist to working in finance. Yeah, um, it was an interesting um, transition, actually. So I I did out of college start in journalism, and I ended up on the business beat at the uh, daily in my area of Connecticut, and um, which southern Southern Connecticut. And wasn't when I was reporting on business, I got more and more interested in it. I actually really hadn't studied business in school. I was a liberal arts major. Um, but you know, markets were very intriguing to me. And after reporting on it for a few years, I wanted to go back and you know see if I could enter that field. Of course, I needed a way to to transition from being an, a writing, you know, uh, made English major um, and and a writer to you know sort of the investment side of things. Um, and and I did that via a degree. So I I actually went back to my alma mater to get an MBA in finance to kind of facilitate that transition over to working in the investment field. It worked great, um, you know, because obviously too, I was able to be networking. MBAs are great for networking. Um, so I got to meet a lot of people in the field and that was able to, that that made my introduction into a, a, a company. It was actually a boutique asset manager that I went to called Symmetry Partners. Yeah. You mentioned um, the liberal arts background, obviously being a journalist, the writing how have you found that that's been helpful to you in your career in finance, the, particularly the part about writing? It's such a smart question because I don't think people connect it necessarily, and it's completely connected. If you are in the field of trying to communicate something complicated to an audience that needs your help, needs to understand what are these instruments that I'm using to engage in capital markets, and they don't know a lot about capital markets, I don't think our you know, education system does a lot to help people understand investing and, you know, what does it mean to be in a cash investment versus a fixed income investment versus an equity market investment. So having a background in communications and, you know, learning and training over time to be able to present complex topics to people in a way that they understand was has been, you know, extremely helpful to me in my career. Uh, because I talk to investors, I talk to advisors, I talk to money managers, et cetera. And, you know, in all those cases, you need to be able to communicate well. Yeah, it's a really good point. Um, you just brought up something that kind of piqued my interest. And, in, you know, that was kind of this notion that the education system really doesn't prepare you for all things finance. I mean, I didn't, I when I graduated college and I was signing up for my first 401k, I didn't really know what I was doing. I was probably calling my dad asking um, for help. So where do you see the gaps um, in the education system as it relates to like all things finance? Yeah, you know, it's, I think we still have home ec, although it's called something different, right? We have home ec and we have, um, you know, learn how to do woodworking or whatever, uh, you know, but the basics of finance, right? Basics of 
having all the adult members of a household be able to understand even, you know, how do I balance a checkbook? And again, what does it mean to be invested in a savings account? What are my options in terms of, you know, if I, if I want to be invested in a riskier asset versus a less risky asset, asset, what does that mean in terms of my potential for returns? I don't think the educational system even really um, attempts to capture that information and, and deliver it. So um, 100%, I think there's a gap there that could, could and should be closed. And what ends up happening by us not, you know, sort of engaging with young people on this is that their first introduction to markets is potentially not what it could or should be, right? They're, they're more likely to, and, and we're seeing this now, right? Maybe um, directed brokerage or, you know, these um, uh, online uh, discount brokerage firms where you're buying a single stock. And, you know, for those of us in the industry, concentration risk is one of those obvious things you learn really early on, right? That if I concentrate in one stock, I really take an inordinate amount of risk relative to what I could do just investing in a simple ETF or mutual fund. So there's there's a big gap there. And, you know, I we, we think certainly it, it needs to be filled by uh, folks in the discipline, advisors, et cetera, who can help clients navigate markets. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about InvestNet. Um, I actually don't know that much about the company. I know it's a fintech. Can you explain for the folks watching, maybe the layperson out there like myself, like, what is InvestNet? Yeah. <laughs> So it's a it's a business to business company. So I think um, the average person, although I think um, the company is kind of more in the sphere. The more we move into, you know, just um, helping explain investments in general. But Investnet is uh, it started life as a turnkey asset management program, which basically means it's a um, company that provides your local financial advisor with all of the tools that they need to invest for you. So be it different asset management solutions, a proposal system, by that it means, of course, you know, I want to go in and say, okay, I have XYZ client, I think they'd be great in this portfolio. Okay, well, I need the whole infrastructure around how to invest them in that portfolio. I need the options, right, to help me decide which portfolio, which asset manager, which money manager I want to use. I need a system to propose, literally create a document to go back to my client that says, hey, here's, you know, this investment that I think would be good for you. Here's why. Here's what it returned in the past. Here's how it fits into your existing portfolio, et cetera. I need, you know, documentation for all the compliance, tons of legal and compliance, of course, in this industry. Um, so, you know, sign offs, et cetera, from the client. Uh, I need the capability to trade on those portfolios, right? Because it's not a set it and forget it. I've got to be able to go in and not only trade in at first, but rebalance, et cetera. And I need reporting capabilities, right, to show the client how I'm doing. So, so those are some of the core functions that InvestNet provides advisors. But we've really evolved over the last 15 years into a much more integrated platform where think of think of everything I just described and now extend it out to many other pieces of the puzzle financial planning software so the advisor can help the client understand from a goals-based perspective where they are today, where they need to be in 20 years, whatever it may be, and how they're going to get there. Um, data and analytics. A, a key uh, focus for us is how to help leverage the data that's available. We see it being leveraged, of course, in so many parts of our lives. 
financial data is so powerful for the client, for the advisor to be able to help customize for that client. So data and analytics, a huge piece of what we offer. And then a multitude of different asset management solutions and technologies, right? Anything from annuities, loans and credit, um, trust, healthcare, alternatives, investment, structure notes, you name it. We have a, a, either it's on our platform or we have a partnership to offer it. Got it. So you all B2B and you work with financial advisors, I guess, all across uh, the the U.S. Um, I don't know, globally or is it just U.S.? Um, We're focused in the U.S. It's interesting. We actually just announced a partnership with a a global custodian, FNZ, um, to kind of expand that footprint as well, because we, of course, do see um, great options. And, you know, Canada is a place that we have a heavy focus as well. Got it. You mentioned um, leveraging data and analytics. Can you like walk me through an example of like how y'all do that or like what and what it would mean for like, you know, the other person, the client on the other side of that? 100%. So, yeah. So um, think of an insight. We, we call it an insight, right? That um, you have a portfolio that the client is invested in currently. And um, what are some insights we could provide on that portfolio? Well, an example of one would be maybe their tax ramifications. So maybe they're sitting with a lot of embedded capital gains. We can push an insight out via data and analytics to the advisor to help them say, okay, is there an opportunity here to harvest if there's losses, maybe harvest some losses, or if there's a lot of gains, should that advisor be looking at a more tax efficient solution for that client? So there's a bunch, and and within that idea of insight, right, you can imagine it it can get pretty granular. It can be you know, maybe you want to look at a more tax efficient portfolio, or maybe there's, we have overlay services on tax that enable the advisor, keep the existing portfolio, but add a tax management layer on top of it. So that's one, that that's just one example. Um, I think it's a good prominent example, but there's, there's many different types of insights you can have. Um, concentration risk, right? You know, I, I talked earlier about the, the uh, investor who, who puts a lot of their assets into one stock. You know, from a financial planning perspective, that's that's pretty risky, right? It's, I mean, it's one thing if it's kind of your play money, but if if this is serious money for you, you want to diversify that. So you want the advisor to have sight lines and insights from the data that say, okay, we looked across your book of business, and you may have you know lost track. Um, you know, this portfolio has sold a lot of its other holdings, so now you've got a big chunk sitting in maybe one holding. Do you want to diversify this? It's it's ideas like that. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that you talk a lot to investors, advisors, and uh, money managers. And um, it seems like the financial sector has been changing or um, is poised to certainly change. Like, what do you what do you think the future holds? So much. Um, I would say the single biggest element is digitization, you know, the the application of technology and data to traditional money management. So there, there, there are a lot of ways that I could answer that question, but I think probably the one that, you know, is most uh, prevalent or, or I see very clearly is, you know, just how does tech and the advent and um, access to a lot of data change that relationship that we all have to investing And one of the ways, one of the biggest ways that we see is that we are moving very much toward a world of hyper-personalization. And by that, I mean, um, it's very very much now within the advisor's scope 
to be able to customize investments for the clients. And what we see in surveys is that they they kind of they expect that from their advisor, right? So living in a world where everything is sort of customized to your needs, right? You get ads pushed out to that are very specific to you for, you know, whatever, a car, you know, something you were looking at that some algorithm back there is saying, oh, if you were interested in this, you might be interested in this, right? Uh, That's the world we live in. And if you're a financial advisor, clients are just assuming that you have access to those same types of insights, those same abilities to say, hey, this is a, this in particular investment maybe more relevant to you than that. You know, so so one way you see that actually happening is with sustainable investing. And I, I use this term sustainable more broadly than ESG, right? I, what I mean by sustainable is really just, can I incorporate my social preferences into my holdings? Um, you know, things like filtering out certain types of holdings used to be really, back in the day, right? That was something endowments did and pensions did. and you know, very, it wasn't very common on the retail side. I think what we're seeing now and and why you're seeing more and more money flow to some of these products is it's just becoming more and more accessible to a retail audience with uh, lower and lower account minimums to be able to do these kinds of things. So customization, personalization, and all of that made possible because tech has gotten so much better. Data availability has gotten so much better. Mm -hmm. I remember um, at one point there was this kind of narrative around the rise of robo advisors and maybe, you know, younger generations looking more toward those than like your traditional financial advisor. Um, I guess I don't really, I don't really have a financial advisor, I guess maybe kind of, but I don't know. I wouldn't say really. Um, what are you seeing from like the trends as it relates to like younger generations who are coming into money and starting to think about like how to invest it? Are they using financial advisors? Are they kind of going, more on the robo route or even doing it there by themselves? Yeah, all of the above. I would say where we sort of, you know, our our goal is to kind of have that junction of the optimal junction of the tech and the advisor, right? So when people are investing smaller amounts of money, the comfortability with a, a, you know, simply robo solution is higher. Um, When you get to a point where you've you've got a, a bit of a nest egg there, and you are looking for more of that human touch and somebody that you can talk to. And, you know, frankly, you may not be looking for this, but the single biggest um, or one of the, the single biggest um, added values, I think, of a relationship with an advisor is that they can keep you disciplined in the market. You know, think about what we've been through the course of the last year and just the volatility of markets in general, right? If you're invested and you're you're watching, you know, a 30% drop or what have you, maybe you say, I can't take anymore and you take the money out and then you miss the month we just had where, you know, it shot back up and you you regain some of your ground. I mean, investing in equity markets is, it's quite a ride having an advisor to walk you through it. Somebody who's, who's accustomed to this, who understands how markets behave um, and can say, hey, look, you know, this is how much we think you can put in the equity market, how much you should keep over in, you know, maybe um, less volatile assets. So you can sleep at night and not sell out at the worst time. That's a key piece of, you know, a relationship that it's it's hard to see how a robo replaces that in any way. Um, the customization I mentioned before, the robo can provide all the algorithms in the world, but it's the advisor who's going to have the relationship with the client to understand, yeah, but what are the inputs, right? What is this client really telling me? Um, and how do I input that into the system in such a way that it's going to produce an answer that that makes sense. I don't 
think the tech is there yet. You could envision tech being there at some point, I guess, but hard to see um, that, you know, being in a place now where where the advisor um, becomes less relevant. We really believe that it's the junction of the advisor utilizing the tech, right, to be able to say, okay, here are the inputs. What, you know, what's a dispassionate, unbiased, you know, uh, algorithmic driven view say about how to how to handle this. So 100%, um, you know, advent of robo, you know, kind of like um, travel agents, right, I think is the nice uh, analogy where travel agents didn't go away because of websites, they, they got much better at their job. Got it. I, I, I see that. So they can use this technology. It's kind of like humans plus machines um, right. working together. Yep. Um, well said. I want to pivot and, you know, since you are the CIO or co-CIO there, I do want to like talk about the economy and markets and I was hoping maybe we can kind of just start with more of like your macro view right now. What are the things that are top of mind for you? Yeah, um, well, I, I've talked a lot about, you know, just where we are in terms of uh, recession and, you know, volatility in markets. Obviously, it's been a rough ride this year. I think what, what's really been very tough about this year is the fact that, you, the, so, so a traditional 60-40 is the way a lot of people approach markets, right? They, they have 60% in public market equities and they have 40% in public market fixed income. And the 40% in income is really the fixed income and the bond side really traditionally doesn't have the, the level of losses that you can experience on the equity side. Now, of course, it doesn't also um, have the higher potential for gain, but it, but that 60-40 is meant to be that palatable instrument. And this year, we, we saw double-digit losses in the fixed income side because the interest rate increases were just kind of this you know startling, stark, hey, we have to fight inflation. So the Fed has to rate it, raise interest rates and they have to do it in a very abrupt manner. Um, so that really hurt a lot of client portfolios this year. More than you know, years where you see the equity markets drop in this way, but the fixed income is kind of acting as the ballast. So I think we're in a position now where a lot of clients are looking at their portfolios saying, you know, kind of, oh, this, this is a very tough year. How much more of this do we have to deal with? Uh, predicting markets is a fool's game. So I, you know, what I try to do when I talk about markets is just, hey, what's the information we have? And what does it help? How can it help us in terms of prep or, you know, um, where we want to um, think about putting assets or, um, you know, advising our clients? And I would say volatile markets beget volatile markets. There's actually persistence in volatility that we observe in the track record of markets. So volatility takes time to decay. My, you know, again, without trying to predict it, I would say as an advisor, planning for continued volatility probably makes sense. And there are some fundamental reasons too why we can expect that we might see uh, continued volatility, right? The debt ceiling, you know, the the continued political um, fighting that we're going to have over uh, uh, getting through that is one. Um, resurgence of COVID, you see what's happening in China, the Russia-Ukraine war and what that does um, on the energy side, et cetera. Um, and just, you know, the, the type of recession that we're in, right, which is probably sort of a mix of structural and cyclical type properties. And that tends to take a little bit of time to work its way out. Mm -hmm. um, on the traditional 60-40, um, do you think it's dead or... Or is that just like an over-exaggeration? 
Yeah, I don't think it's dead. I, it, it's too, it's been such a go-to for so long in our industry. Um, I, I absolutely don't think it's dead. I think a lot of people will continue forward with 60-40. I think, you know, for the most part, we're, we are seeing a top out. It's not to say um, interest rates don't continue to, to increase, but a lot is already worked in at this point. So I, I think the 40%, it's not likely to see that level of loss uh, going forward that we saw uh, looking back on this year. Um, so a lot of people are actually positioning in the way of saying, well, okay, you know, it was a tough ride, but now we can actually um, look at, you know, still having more neutral and a little bit higher duration. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's dead. Um, but I do think that the availability of other diversifying options is going to mean that over time, we're going to see increased use of that option. So I talked a little bit about sustainable. Um, the same idea corresponds to things like alternatives, right? Where you used to have to be very high net worth. Qualified purchaser level has not changed. So, so the people who qualify as qualified purchasers, you know, on a relative basis continues to, to kind of um, be more and more accessible to more people. Um, and then what you have in addition to, you know, private markets and hedge funds, you have a lot of these providers now saying, okay, I was in the institutional space I'm now pivoting to the retail space. I want to have you know, an offering that's applicable there. And if that's what they're looking to do, they're going to create products, and we're seeing it already, innovations that make their types of investing more accessible to that audience. What do I mean uh, by that? You know, um, evergreen vehicles, um, 1940 Act regulated vehicles for trading alternatives. Think of interval funds, for example, is a, an innovation that we see more and more coming to bear where you have a QCIP vehicle um, and you can trade it on a platform like InvestNet uh, and you know the client has access to a diversifying stream, right? Where it's an alternative asset class that has lower beta to public equity markets where most of their assets are and may also have low beta to the fixed income side. So it's a long-winded way of saying 100% it's not dead, but if you make other vehicles more accessible, and you expose more advisors to them, I naturally expect that just, you know, what happens over time is maybe you see more and more diversifying of that 60-40. Got it. More diversifying from the 60-40. Um, I also want to just double click on something you mentioned about, um, you know, I guess the current, uh, you were talking about structural and cyclical bear markets. Can we explore that and flesh that out a little bit for the folks listening and watching? Sure. Yeah. Um, there's, there's three bear markets, generally speaking, or three types that you kind of see um, event-driven type bear markets, something like COVID. You have an exogenous shock, a shock that comes into the system and creates you know, this bear market, right? Um, a drop in the markets, uh, a significant drop in the level of the equity market. Um, COVID was a great example, right? Clearly a, an outside shock hits the system. Cyclical is more like your standard, hey, it happens, this is the nature of markets every seven years or so, um, and you kind of expect it, price levels get, get too high, you have a natural retrenchment, et cetera. Structural are, are somewhat more problematic in that, you know, there, there are fundamental issues that the system has to work out, right? And it, you know, so it may be things like, again, um, energy shortages now. Another structural issue that we're dealing with, I think, is, is 
retrenchment in the idea of this globalization dividend that we've all been enjoying, right? So the, we're going from a world where what's the lowest cost supply chain I can bring to bear to I want to protect my supply chains. Maybe I don't want to be dependent on China uh, for, for supply. So now I have to source at higher cost uh, you know, domestically. So that will make a difference. That's a structural change in the economy that has to work its way out. Um, you know, and, and what does that mean, right? For valuations, maybe, right? Maybe the valuation multiples. So the amount I'll pay for future cash flows today uh, might be a little bit less than it was in the past. Or what's my natural rate of inflation now in this in this type of market? You know, two percent may, may be a harder target to get to. At least, certainly in the short run, it will be. Um, so maybe I'm looking at slightly higher rates of inflation, things like that. Yeah. Um, going back to just in investing um, and kind of going through these. This was a very interesting year, I suppose. Um, Stocks for stocks and bonds uh, both going down. Talk to me about like, because you were kind of hinting at it too, like, um, you know, kind of managing through and being able to ride through the volatility. Like, what are I mean, what are you kind of sensing out there from the folks that you're talking to? Like, what kind of conversations are they having um, with clients about this? Yeah, you know, this is where the rubber meets the road, right? And the advisor really does the great work for the client is having those conversations to keep them disciplined. But I think, you know, part of those conversations are, are you allocated correctly? Um, now's not the time you want to be kind of moving out of the market and locking in your loss. But unfortunately, markets like this do force conversations that, you know, it unfortunately, investors, we're all sort of notorious for taking more risk in good markets. And, you know, even the advisor, though the advisor will take you through that, you know, illustration of, okay, uh, could you live with a 10% drop in your holdings? That looks like this, right? Or could you live with a 20% or a 30%? And when it's far away, the, you know, investors tend to overestimate how much they can actually live with. And then when they get their statements, and they're seeing, you know, this this discomfitting drop in the value of their assets. All of a sudden, you know, they can't handle that anymore. So conversations like that, of course, you know, about what risk level is really appropriate. Another interesting uh, set of conversations we're we're seeing, of course, a big demand on the insurance side, right? Annuities. You know, if you are a client who wants some of the upside of equity markets but you're willing to pay for some guarantees so that you're not entirely at risk. You certainly see annuities and those types of conversations pick up in market environments like this, because you have people who, you know, have a, have that moment of understanding that bare unprotected exposure to capital markets maybe just doesn't sit with them well. Um, and they would like some sort of an insurance type program that, you know, they can again participate but they're willing to give up some of the upside that comes with paying a fee to have a, a protection around that. What is? Can you explain what that means? Like when you're talking about insurance, is that like buying something more of a hedge for your portfolio? What, what do you mean yeah. by that? Yeah, there's all different, certainly all different types of annuity products out there. Um, but you know, the, the general idea is I want to have some sort of link to higher returns over time but I don't want to bet the farm, right? I don't want un, I don't want full um, unhedged exposure to the market. 
So there are various types of whether it's a variable annuity, um, you know, RILAs that 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 are sort of like structured, no vehicles, but longer duration where, you know, so for example, um, a vehicle like that, uh, you would say, okay, um, I have access to market returns, but, and so I can, I can enjoy the upside, but I'm somewhat buffered on the downside. I pay in order to be in a product that if the market drops, maybe I only have to deal with a portion of that market drop because there's an insurance product or maybe there's a floor altogether. So if the market drops too low, you know, I have a cutoff about um, where my, um, you know, where my losses come in, yeah. you know, so, and then variable annuities where you can have um, guarantees on your income, right? Whatever, regardless of what happens to my, my equity market participation within that annuity, I have some kind of rider on there that says, hey, I'm going to have income of X percent, right? Four or 5%, Brett, whatever it is of my value. And that's regardless of what happens with markets. So over time, that probably depletes the value of my holdings, but I'm guaranteed a certain amount of income. So I don't have to worry about, and, and what's really, you know, what, what you really have to kind of be concerned with in equity market investing is a bad sequence of returns. A lot of people focus on the risk of the market where you're in the market um, and you you have a bad uh, uh, time, right? Call it a, a 2022. That actually isn't the big risk to your portfolio. The risk is that you have that 2022 as you are uh, retiring and starting to take income. So that sequence of when the bad returns happens is actually the thing you have to kind of protect against. So there are, you know, so many different types of annuity contracts out there. There's really, you know, our industry is is great for financial innovation. If there's some version of something that somebody wants, somebody came in and tried to figure out what that is. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, am I willing to give up some of the upside to pay for some sort of guarantee? Yeah. It probably also goes back to personalization too, because I imagine everyone's circumstances are completely unique and like what they can tolerate as well. Yeah, um, that's right. So I also want to bring up this with you too, like, as you kind of look ahead on, are there areas that are interesting to you that maybe were out of favor before because the environment has changed? So I am a, what is known as a value investor at heart. Um, I, first of all, highest level, I believe, uh, diversify your portfolio, right? If, if there's one takeaway that you're going to get from me on how to approach capital markets, it is diversify. Um, if there's anything that comes out of the literature, it's it makes no sense to um, to be concentrated in any way. You can get similar returns and less risk just by adding uncorrelated assets to the portfolio. That's a high level takeaway. Second level is what types of stocks do you tilt more toward? So within that diversified portfolio, are you doing any sort of overweighting relative to the market weight? And I approach markets with a bias toward overweighting lower price stocks, um, overweighting other style factors or, or what they're called, basically overweighting the types of stocks that the empirical academic research has surfaced that tend to outperform over time. So as you can imagine, there's been decades and a lot of research on markets, right? What works and what doesn't? How do I outperform just the basic market cap weight benchmark? That's been really hard to do over the course of the last 10 years up to this last year uh, because the market weight benchmark was killing it. 
right? Because very, you know, big reason being that uh, big technology companies, which have huge market caps, so they have a correspondingly huge weight in your index and therefore in your market weight portfolio, are doing great. Their, their returns are phenomenal. They're outpacing all of the other stocks. So in a market like that, it's very hard to beat just the strict market cap weighted index. But what the academic research tells us is that over time, buying the lower price stocks actually tends to outperform. So we've gone for a long period where that didn't really work because these growthier companies, growthy tech companies, where the price of the stock relative to the estimated future cash flows or relative to the book value are, is actually pretty high, but they just kept growing anyway. Now we're in a market where interest rates are higher. So interest rate, higher interest rates means higher capital costs for companies. All of a sudden, it's a little bit more costly to invest for future growth that's not there yet. So my, my already pre-existing bias towards these lower price companies that comes from long-run academic research is only sort of strengthened by the condition of the market that we're in now, where we're rotating back to a more fundamentals-driven market based on the fact that interest rates that were so low and the cost of money was just you know virtually zero right it didn't just very easy to borrow at very low rates that's going away and we're back to a market where you do have to say okay well here's here's the return i'm going to get and here's how quickly i'm going to get it versus here's the cost yeah um the higher rate environment making a uh, value investing uh, attractive again um yeah. you spent 14 years doing research uh you were at Symmetry Partners, um, also, again, co-CIO at Investnet. So I'd imagine there are a lot of things that you're paying attention to or looking out toward. Um, talk to me about what are the things that are on your radar? Yeah, um, so where I am at current day is, you know, so all the all the stuff we've talked about, right, the standard kind of takeaways from, um, you know, the, the literature, our history, what we observe in capital markets, all of that, I think, 100%, that's your first step, right, in terms of just where I'm advising people and the focus I would have. Again, diversify. Um, think about tilts towards these style factors, like not just value, but, you know, quality, right? Companies that have um, higher profitability tend to outperform over time. Even some technical indicators like momentum, uh, you know, where companies that have been performing well on a stock return basis tend to continue to do so for, for a period of time. And then, you know, they kind of uh, reverse a little. So being able to invest in those ways, I think, are 100% relevant and a, a focus. I would say in my current position, I'm, I'm more geared toward how do we supplement that with tools that allow the advisor and the investor to engage more in those investments and therefore facilitate a more disciplined approach to the market. The, the, you know, one of the biggest findings from the research is that investors don't help themselves much, right? So there are, there are different ways you can calculate a return. One way is time-weighted, where it's just what was the return period after period of that investment? Another way is um, investor-weighted, right? What we call IRR, where I look at the actual return I earned in dollars. And the difference between the two is that it's not so much now what the investment return period after period, it's what my own money returned, given the fact that I had more or less invested during the good times or the bad times. 
meaning now my cash flows are part of the picture. So if the investment returned 5% and then 20% and then negative 15%, did I have a lot of money? Did I have just as much money invested during the five and the 20 as during the negative 15? Or did I have more money now invested during the negative 15? I probably did because my, my value of my investment increased in the five and the 20 period. Now I experienced a downturn. That downturn is actually taking place on a bigger piece of assets that I have now. So I actually, my, my IRR is lower because th than what my TWR is, what my time rate return would be, because I felt the pain of that negative 15 more than the increase um, on a relative basis, dollar for dollar. Uh, well, I shouldn't say dollar for dollar, but by the size of my portfolio. So, so one of the um, you know big focuses I have as co-CIO at InvestNet is again bringing these customized solutions to advisors that they can provide to clients, so they can keep the client disciplined and not sort of lock in losses, right, and not engage in investor behavior where they'd be likely to get out at the worst times because the research tells us that, you know, we're our own worst enemies. We're not wired for this type of thing, right? We're, we're not all collectively wired to watch our, our nest eggs just lose in value dramatically and not do anything about it. No fight or flight, just, just let it, just let it be right. Telling somebody to just let it be is tough. But if you have a portfolio that is really customized around them and you're clear on your goals, you have good financial planning tools to help the advisor walk through that discussion with the client and say, this is what we planned for. We knew that a market like this was going to happen. You are invested in such a way that we fully expect a drop like this. And then over time, these assets to come back, to claw their way back. So we're not going to do anything or we're going to do whatever we uh, prescribed when we got into this relationship. Um, in a case like this. So I'm very focused on, you know, more of the tools that the advisor has. And by tools, I also mean different types of, of um, investments. I alluded earlier to sustainable. Think about, you know, a client who says to the advisor, I'm really interested in XYZ. Um, you know, I don't want these types of stocks in the portfolio. I do want these. If the advisor can make that happen, and then moreover, report out to the client on, okay, here's how you're not only getting a financial return, but we're also getting another kind of return on your investment where you're supporting the causes that you care about. We're doing it in a prudent way. It's not, you know, maybe it's low tracking error or it's done in a way that we, we don't anticipate negative impacts to the um, financial return. Then you have a much better engagement with the client. You have that quarterly meeting. You explain that report out in such a way that um, they're just more likely to stay engaged in the investment over time. Yeah. And it kind of makes me bring up the point again of like, how much does the psychology part of the equation matter? Oh, so much. I mean, you know, there's, there's obviously um, whole disciplines around behavioral finance and applying what we've learned in, you know, uh, psychology, et cetera, to the, the financial engagement. I mean, we have a lot of biases as investors, right? Confidence, you know, we, we have an overconfidence bias. We think we know more than we really do, right? We try to apply the insights. Oh, I, I watched CNBC this morning. I, you know, I, I, I want to do this in the portfolio. The odds of that having any positive value in your portfolio are virtually none, right? Th those are great programs to help you understand what's going on in markets and to understand what's going on in the financial um, ecosystem, what's happening in your investments, but making tactical moves based on what you watched in the news media 
um, not likely to pay off, right? A, you're going to probably pay transaction costs to make it happen. And B, whatever you're hearing is, is, is to a larger extent already worked into market prices, right? You're not, it's not as though you're getting that um, hot off the press that everybody else is not aware of it as well. So to the extent it's true or not true and will or will not happen, the entire market is, is a price setting mechanism that applies a probability to that and it impacts the prices and it happens really fast. The research says it, you know, so, so getting ahead of that is tough, but people are overconfident and, you know, they kind of believe in their own, um, you know, their own thoughts on these things. Recency bias. We have a tendency as human beings to overestimate the, the importance of something that most that happens most recently, as opposed to the long haul. So we've all seen these charts about markets, how just, you know, they go down and up and down and up, but the secular trend is up, right? So, so we all know, and it, it shouldn't be that difficult for an advisor to keep the client disciplined because even in the worst economic downturns, the worst bear markets, we know that the trend over time has been up, yet it is hard because we overestimate the, the importance of the recent information. We say, oh, this time it's different. I don't know if it's going to come back. I need to, to sell out. Um, you know, uh, prospect theory, we have a bias towards being more, having more pain come from our losses than appreciating our gains. So we're not these, you know, dispassionate machines that approach these markets and say, well, you know, dollar for dollar, this the upside here is worth the downside here. In fact, what we find is behaviorally, we really don't like taking losses. We don't like losing what we already have. And that hurts us more than looking at the potential gains. So we overweight that. Well, Dana, I'm going to pass it back to you. If you have any parting thoughts or you want to let know, want to let folks know where they can you know, find you or learn more about your um, firm, InvestNet. Sure. Thank you. Uh, yeah. And, and thank you for the time for everybody who uh, listened to this. And if there, if there is information here that you want to learn more about, we have a very robust website, InvestNet, just E-N-V-E-S-T-N-E-T. Uh, we, we are um, fully vested as our slogan. So if you just type those words into Google, you'll, you can see various sites that we have um, that you can access more information. One of the best ways to access us is via the advisor network. Um, we have more than 100,000 advisors using our system through various relationships with various broker dealers, et cetera. So um, many ways to access uh, what we're doing. Dana Diaria, co-CIO and group president of solutions at InvestNet. I thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Really great to have you on. Thank you for having me.